Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. I want you to go ahead and I want you to turn to the book of Ruth. And I don't know if any, some of you old timers may still carry your Bibles. We'll have it on the screen for you. Uh, I just can't break an old habit. But um, if you've heard me speak before or if you've heard me uh, teach Bible study before, especially you women, you're going to remember me hearing, you're going to remember me saying this. This is the way I've always read the Bible with this perspective. I've, I've always loved the word of God. I've always read the word of God. And I'll tell you a little bit more about my story as we get into it. But I've always read the Bible with this perspective. I haven't read the Bible just to check off the to-do list for the day. I haven't read it. And there was a time that I did. But then God began to do a work in my heart because I was missing out on so much of who God was by the way that I read the Bible. And I began to read the Bible this way when I would open up every single morning when I open up my Bible. No matter what my reading schedule may say or no matter what direction I may feel where I need to read. I always ask God, God, may I know you more by what I'm about to read. That what I'm about to read, God, may I know your character and may I know your heart more through what I read when I'm finished than when I began. So we're not just reading the stories of the Bible and we put the readings up for you every week and and prayerfully you're reading through those with us. And as you open your word every day that you sit and you spend time with him, that your heart would be open to go, God, let me know more of you today. Let me see your character and your heart, not just the stories and not just the people that we're going to learn and read about, but in every single story and every single chapter and every single verse that you're going to read in the Bible, there's a part and, a, and an insight to the character and the heart of God. And when you read it with that perspective, it changes everything because you see a God that is woven between every story and every up and down and every mountain and valley and every good time and every bad time. And you're going to see a God, the how he works and how he moves and the character and the heart that he carries. And there's no greater example of that than in the book of Ruth and, and that, we're, that we're going to go to today. So I want you to go to the book of Ruth. I want you to turn to chapter one and I'm going to just set this up for you. The book of Ruth is simply a book. It's four chapters long. It's a tiny little book that's, 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 that's uh, packed in between the book of Judges that we just finished. And you remember we went through the Judges that God set up. And then after the book of Ruth, we're going to introduce you to Eugene next week as we go into 1 Samuel. So there's this little tiny book of only four chapters that God so ordained just to slide right in in the middle of some Old Testament books. And it's the story about a family. And we've heard about families over the last several months when Adam and Eve and and then we get to Moses and then we get to Joshua and then we get to before that we got to Abraham and it's a story. But this this book is a story about an ordinary family, a man and a wife and two sons. There was nothing extraordinary about them, that there was no priest, there was no king, there was no prophet in their family. This was just an ordinary Cajun family that was just trying to live and do good and do right by God. 
Nobody would look at this family and think anything was special about them. Nobody would look at this family and they wouldn't stand out in any way. An ordinary family, just like you and I, trying to make ends meet, trying to make a living for your family, trying to raise your children right, just an ordinary family. There's in this book, there is no direct interaction with God. You don't see God show up. You don't see God perform a miracle. You don't see God speak to them. You don't see them speaking to God. There's no direct interaction with God in this book. But just because we don't see him in this book doesn't mean that he's not moving and working in the lives of this family that we're going to soon see. And before I go any farther with that, I want to encourage you in that. Just because you may not see him and just because you may not hear him and just because he may not be showing up right now doing great and mighty miracles in your life does not mean that he's not there, he's not working, he's not moving He's not ordering your steps. He's not interwoven in every single thing you do 24 hours a day. Don't ever think if you don't see him or feel him on a certain day that he's not there because that's absolutely not the truth. And we're gonna see that in this family in the book of Ruth. So Ruth chapter one, and I'm just gonna read the first two chapters. This is what, it is impossible for me to tell, there's a hundred messages in this four chapters. Obviously, I can't do them all. So I'm going to have to use self-control to just keep on point of where I'm going because we, I've done 12 week Bible studies out of these four chapters. So you're going to witness a miracle today for me to get one message out of this. Okay. So you'll bear with me. Ruth chapter one, verses one and two. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Amelichek, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrites from Bethlehem, Judea, and they went to Moab, and they lived there. Okay, so we're just going to land right there for just a moment. The first phrase that I read in the days when the judges ruled tells us a great deal about their culture. If you remember, we just came out of the book of, we just came out of the book of Judges and that's when we talked about Deborah. We came back, Eugene talked about Gideon who was a judge. Pastor Don last week talked about Samson. Remember those were dark days for the children of Israel. And that God had to raise up a judge for them throughout the time. And remember the vicious cycle that they turned and and, and repented and gave their heart to God and went back to God. And then the next judge would come and then they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it was this vicious cycle. They did good for a while, then they did bad. They did good, they did bad. It was this vicious cycle, generation after generation after generation. That's the setting of the book of Ruth. So when it says in the days when the judges ruled, that was the culture and the setting to which this family lived. In Judges chapter 17, it says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. 
So whatever people wanted to do, they did. Whatever rules they wanted to go by, they went by. Whatever new rules they wanted to make, they made. Whatever God they wanted to worship, they worshiped. Whatever they saw in their own eyes, they did. And they, however they wanted to live, they lived. Does that sound familiar? There really is nothing new under the sun, is there? This was the culture in which this family lived. I'm going to give you four thoughts today. I'm going to continue reading through, but let me give you the first thought today. Number one is this. Moab always looks good during a famine. Moab always looks good during a famine. This family was Israelites. They were God-chosen people. They had heard the stories of the God. They had heard the stories of their God parting the Red Sea and bringing them through the wilderness. They had heard the stories of Jericho being defeated. They had heard the stories of how God had moved on their behalf for their people. These were Israelite Jewish people. This family was living, the Bible just said, living in Bethlehem, Judea. Bethlehem means house of praise. That's the name Bethlehem. It means the house of praise. Judea means the house of bread. So God's presence and his provision is where they were living. It was the promised land. But then a famine came to their land where food was scarce and water was scarce and provision was scarce. And every time you read about a famine in the Bible, most always it is God's judgment to his people because of their disobedience. When you see a famine, Again, they were living in the house of praise and the house of bread. They were living in the place of God's presence and his provision. And then God brings the sins of famine and dries it up. And food is scarce and water is scarce and provision is scarce. And God's trying to get his people to turn back their hearts to him because they've wandered so far away. So Amelichek, the husband, the leader of the family, Instead of deciding to live and remain in the, God's presence and his provision and to believe God to meet their needs and to ask God to send rain and to send provision to their people, he packs their family up and he goes to a country named Moab. Moab was one of the nations that oppressed Israel during the time of the judges. There was great hostility between the two nations. Psalms tells us that Moab is a wash pot, meaning a bucket where someone would wash their feet. Moab was a country, and you find this in the book of Genesis. Moab was created and began to be a country out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. That's how Moab was created. It's a land, it was a land of outcast people serving false gods. So when famine came, when a tough season came, when a dry season came, instead of standing firm, instead of holding on, instead of praying for God's presence to pour out and his provision to come, Amelichek packs up his family and they go to a God-forsaken country with God-forsaken people who are serving false and adulterous gods. Moab always looks good during a famine. Why in the world would Amelichek move his family to such a place? 
because famines can make people do crazy things. Famines can make people do crazy things. We live in a time. We may have all the food that we want. We may have all any water we want to drink. We can go drink it. But famines come not just in the physical, but in the spiritual as well. That we walk through dry times of spiritual famines. We walk through times of economic famines. We walk through times of emotional famines to where it seems like heaven has dried up. It seems like God's removed his hand. And we're walking through tough times. Moab always looks good in a famine. People can do crazy things during a famine. When a family, famine comes to our family, whether it be spiritually or economically, whether it comes to our community, whether it comes to our country, the old way of living begins to look better and better and better. Old ways start looking more, more appealing. An old girlfriend or an old boyfriend, when you're walking through a tough season, all of a sudden, their Facebook page looks real good all of a sudden. An old way of life, old habits, old sins that you had once conquered in seasons of famine, all of a sudden it starts to rise up again. And Moab, the very thing that you used to despise, the very thing that you turned away from when you gave your heart to God during a famine, Moab begins to look very good all of a sudden. We've got to be very, very careful, church. When we walk through seasons of famine, whether that be personally or whether that be in our community and nation, we've got to be very, very careful that we don't allow our eyes and allow us to move out of place of God's presence and his provision and go back to an old place that is dried with false gods, false religions, old way of life. We've got to stand firm and go, God, I'm believing your presence is going to come back. I'm believing your provision is going to come back. I'm believing that you're going to take care of your people. I believe that you're going to take care of my family. Don't be tempted by the Moabs that pop up in your season of famine. You've got to stand firm and you've got to stand strong. The famine of the pandemic that we've been through, it was a famine It was a tough, dry season. It was hard. It was painful. There were losses. The church closed down. And when the church opened up again, there's some people that have yet to return back. And I'm, I'm not judging that there's other places they've gone, they've connected with, and that's awesome. But there's some people that found a Moab and decided to settle there instead of coming back to the place of provision and the place of God's presence. During the 10 years, and I'm going to read it in a minute, Elimechek and Naomi and their sons were in Moab for 10 years, a decade. While they were in Moab, Amelichek dies, the husband, and the two sons die. While they were in Moab, the two sons marry two Moabite women. One named Ruth, one named Orpah. 
But while there, the two sons die also. So Naomi, the wife, is left in the worst possible situation she can be in. And you've heard me say this before. A woman's purpose in biblical culture was to marry and to have children to provide for her and to make sure she was taken care of for the rest of her life and also for future generations to be able to be born and raised. The worst thing possible was for a woman to be a widow and have no children. So Naomi is 10 years in Moab. Now she finds herself with no husband and no sons to take care of her, and she's in a foreign country. Moab can be ruthless. Moab can look like there's going to be life there. It's going to, Moab can look like there's going to be provision there. Moab can look like that it's going to be the grass is greener on the other side. Moab is ruthless. And once it lures you there, it'll take everything you've got. And Moab, Naomi found herself destitute, alone and in a horrible, horrible situation. Dry famine seasons can lead us to the wrong roads with the wrong people far, far away from God. Moab always looks good in a famine. Be very careful of when Moabs begin to pop up and try to lure you back to that place that you should not be going. Number two is this. God always provides a road back home. God always provides a road back home. Ruth chapter one. We're gonna go back, we're gonna skip down to verse six. The verses we skipped are about her husband dying and the son's dying. Verse six says this. When, when she, Naomi, when Naomi heard in Moab that the, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and she set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So she got word that God was sending food to his people back in Bethlehem. So instead, instead of this family holding on and believing God to provide for them, they pack up, they leave, they go to Moab, they spend 10 years, lose the husband, lose the two sons. Naomi gets word that God's providing food now in Bethlehem. And again, it says she left the place where she had been living and she sat out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. God always, 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 always provides a road home. It doesn't matter how far you are in Moab. It doesn't matter how deep you are in your sin. It doesn't matter how far you've wandered away from God. There is never a place you can go. There is never a place you can go so far away from him that there is not always a road to turn around and there will be a road that will lead you back home and back home to him. There's always a road home. There's always a road home. And Naomi understood for 10 years, this was a decade. This wasn't a couple of bad weeks. This was a full decade of loss and mourning and hurt and pain. Naomi knew when it was time to move on. She could have sat there and she could have wallowed. She was in a destitute and desperate situation. She could have remained there 
She could have lived there and just said, this is my lot in life. It's our own fault. This is what's happened. And I'm just going to ride this thing out. And this is just the way life's going to be. But Naomi had enough within her. She had enough of the God of Israel within her. When she heard that there was food, when she heard that there was provision, she made a choice and decided to move on. And when we walk through seasons of famine, church, it does not to take away loss and not to take away hurt and not to take away pain because famine brings us all of those things. And there are seasons to grieve and to mourn our losses. I'm not saying we don't do that. But there has to come a time where we get up and we fix our eyes on a road that's going to lead us back home. We have to make a determination and we have to have enough wherewithal within us to know when it's time to get up, to wash our faces, to put on clean clothes and to get ourselves back to the place that God had for us from the very beginning. There's always a road back home. And then flip over to verse 20 of, of, of chapter one. So Ruth and Naomi, they get, and I'm gonna come back to some earlier verses, but the, the two women get to Bethlehem. Verse 19, so the two women went on till they came to Bethlehem. When they, they arrived in Bethlehem, verse 20, the whole town, it says, was stirred because, and because Naomi's been gone 10 years. She comes back. The town was going, is this Naomi? Can this really be Naomi? In verse 20, it says, she says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. That's what Mara means is bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Because the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. There's a lot of life that happened between being totally full and being totally empty. Naomi said, when I left here, when I left the land, when I left God's presence and when I left God's provision, I was full. I was filled up. I was filled up with God. I was filled up with his presence. I was filled up with provision. I was full. And then I went to a land of Moab, an outcast land, a land during the famine. And I lived for 10 years there and I lost everything. And so now when I come back, I'm empty. There's a lot of life that had to happen between full and empty. And along the road that Naomi walked those 10 years of great loss and great heartache, and great pain, which were all legitimate. Somewhere along the road, Naomi, whose name meant pleasant one, went from a pleasant, lovely, God-fearing woman. And 10 years later, because of the famine, she now says, don't even call me Naomi, call me Mara, because my life has now become bitter. Along that road that she took, Bitterness overtook Naomi. Bitterness happens when we refuse to move past the last place of our greatest disappointment. Bitterness comes into our life when we cannot move past the last place of our disappointment. Naomi had great disappointment. And legitimate disappointment. She followed her husband to a place they should have never been in the first place. 
there was great disappointment. The presence of God wasn't there. The spirit of God wasn't there. The provision of God wasn't there. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. Now she's responsible for two daughter-in-laws. There's no hope. There's no future. She's walking this road and she's allowed bitterness now to come in because she can't, she can't get past that last place of disappointment. And though she gets up and she gets on the road back home, when she gets home, when she gets to the place she should have always said in the very beginning, she finds herself not the same woman who left. She finds herself a totally different woman because famine has changed who she is and Moab has changed who she is and bitterness has come in and eaten her alive from the inside out. So much so to where she's even wanting to change her name. Because now she's a woman that's totally empty and filled with bitterness. I could give you story after story after story after story of real people in real life and what bitterness has done to their life. Bitterness will change you. If you're not careful, bitterness will even change your name. Bitterness doesn't have to stay in our hearts though. The hope, the hope is, and we're getting to the part of hope because right now it doesn't seem too hopeful, does it? Chapters one and two is kind of bleak. But God never tells us a story without an ending that is so hopeful and so loving and so forgiving. Chapters one and two are tough because it's real life stuff in a real life family. And Naomi finds herself eaten up with bitterness. I've seen firsthand what bitterness can do to a family. I've seen firsthand. I've had a front row seat of what bitterness can do to a family, to a person, to a family, and to a life. Bitterness is ugly. Bitterness is a poison that eventually kills everyone it infects. I'm not talking about literally, I'm talking about figuratively. It'll eat up life. It'll, it'll, it'll eat away the bitterness that you allow to come in. Is there a place of disappointment? Is there a place of hurt or pain? Is there a place in your own heart that you haven't resolved and brought it to God and released it to him? Because you, did you hear what I just read? Bitterness starts blaming God for your problems. That's what happened with Naomi. Don't, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because I was full and now I'm empty. I was joyful, but now I'm bitter because God's hand's gone out against me. Bitterness will begin to blame everybody else for where you're at. Bitterness will begin to blame even God himself for what's happened to you. And there's people completely in this room that have every legitimate reason to be bitter and have every legitimate reason because of the famines that we've all walked through. But if we're not careful and we don't rid bitterness from our heart, our eyes will go and start blaming God and start blaming other people for where we're at. God, help us that we never raise a fist to God. God, help us that we never raise a finger and go, God, you're the one because of what's happened to me. You're the reason that I'm empty. You're the reason that I'm bitter. The very God that's about to rescue them in a way like they've never known before 
In chapter one, she's raising her fist to God. But we're going to get to chapter four. And you're going to see a God, you know what? He can handle it. He can totally handle it. There's always a road back home church, but make sure on that road back home as you get back to him that you don't have, you haven't allowed bitterness to overtake your heart because of the famine that you've walked through. Number three is this. Divine relationships are God-given gifts to our lives. Divine relationships are God's given gifts to our life. We're still in chapter one. Y'all realize that? We're still in chapter one. Go back to chapter one and now go up to verse 16. When Ruth and Naomi and Orpah hear that there is, there is as food has been provided for in Bethlehem, Naomi gets up and she's going to set back on the road home. The two daughter-in-laws come, they're at a crossroads and the, 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 Naomi is trying to persuade them not to come with her. They're two foreign girls. They're Moabites. They're foreigners. They're not Israelites. They're not Jews. She's trying, because she, she can't even promise them a future for herself, much less their future. So she's trying to talk them out. She's trying to talk them out. And she goes, even if I had sons today, which I'm too old to have, would you wait around till they grow, grew up and marry them? She's trying to send them back. Orpah, one daughter-in-law, goes back to her family and, go, and stays in Moab. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, has this interaction with her, and it's in verse 16. It says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you because where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. If anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. There are some relationships in our life that are divine, God-given relationships. And there is no greater example in God's word than what I just read to you. This is a young woman, a young woman who is widowed, a young woman from a foreign country. Again, no promise or hope, future or provision. But no matter what Naomi said to Ruth, she could not be talked out of not going with her. Ruth saw something in Naomi, even in the bitterness, even in the famine. But there was a God inside of Naomi that Ruth recognized and said, and I just read it. Naomi, I don't care where you go, I'm going. Because the God that's in there somewhere that you've spoken of, I want him to be my God. And the people that you're going to go back to, I want them to be my people. She could not be dissuaded because she recognized that Naomi was a divine God gift to her life. And there's going to be people, church. Some relationships are in our life just for a season. To give us whatever we need to receive from those relationships. But some relationships are divine. Some relationships are God-given divine relationships that will last through our lifetime because God knows we cannot reach our place of purpose or our place of promise without the God-given divine relationships that God's put in our life. We're going to see it in chapter 4. Ruth could not get where she got and could not receive the promise that she got had it not been for Naomi. 
that we need to look around. And I'm not going to spend a long time on this because we've talked about it in the past, but make sure that you're recognizing the divine God-given relationships that are in your life. You're not going to be able to reach your purpose or your promise without those relationships. And we would be wise to cling to them tightly, just like Naomi did. I mean, just like Ruth did. Naomi's trying to talk her out of it. And Ruth's going, "Uh uh-uh, no girlfriend. There is nothing you can say that's going to get me to go away. That's when you know it's divine. And finally, number four, I'm going to hit that in a minute. Victor, if you want to come on back, it's going to take me just a second to close. Because I'm going to get to the good part of the story. Are y'all ready for the good part? Are y'all ready for the good part? This is a great book, but one and two, it's tough. But God's gonna give us that part of the story for us to appreciate what's about to happen. So Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem. Ruth goes to work in a field. It's, it's the barley harvest. Ruth goes to work in a field of a man named Boaz. Okay, y'all remember Boaz? Remember Rahab? Has a son, Boaz. I'm skipping over a million things. But you go back and read it. Boaz was a man of upstanding reputation. You remember his mama was a prostitute. She goes and works in a field. She doesn't know it's Boaz. Remember, Ruth is a foreigner. She doesn't know the culture. She doesn't know the customs. She doesn't know the way things go. But somebody had to provide for them and there was no husband to do it and no sons to do it. So somebody had to provide. So Ruth goes to a field to begin to work the field. And the Bible says, it's just, she just so happens. Don't even get me started. A whole nother message for a whole nother day of the just so happened moments. That she just so happened, found herself in a field of a man named Boaz. And she finds favor in his eyes because she stands out above all the other workers. She works the hardest and the longest. She works without complaining. She works with a grateful and a thankful heart. And that's another message in itself. When we walk out these doors and the work ethic that we have and the attitude by which we do it will make us stand head and shoulders above anybody else. That's what happened with Ruth. When she comes back, Naomi says, whose field were you working in? Ruth said, I was working in a field of a man named Boaz and he's been so kind to me. And he's given me extra grain and he gave me extra grain to bring back to you. And he made sure that none of the other servants were abusive or hurt me because remember, she was a foreigner. And Boaz gave her protection and gave her security and gave her a place to work and to glean in the fields. And when Ruth came back and told Naomi whose field she was in, Naomi said, that is a distant relative of ours. And he is our kinsman redeemer. Ruth chapter three, verse nine. Naomi then tells Ruth at night when it gets dark, Boaz, the owner of the field, 
This was customary. The owner would sleep where the harvest had been gathered so that he was protecting it from someone coming and stealing their harvest. Naomi tells Ruth to go to the threshing floor where the harvest was and for Ruth to lay at the feet of Boaz. It was not a sexual advance. It was a custom of the day that servants who needed to be redeemed would lay at the feet of the owner. So Ruth did exactly as her mother-in-law instructed her. And it was the middle of the night and Boaz woke up and in verse nine, he says, who are you? I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Would you spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer? Would you take your garment and would you spread it over me? Because you're a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was a relative who could redeem. It was a relative that could take responsibility to provide, protect any family members that didn't have husbands or sons to do such. A relative who could redeem. To redeem simply means this, to buy back. It means to make up for a fault or a shortcoming. Ruth lays at his feet and goes, could you spread your garment over me? Because you're a kinsman redeemer. Ruth was asking Boaz to redeem her. I have no future. I have no hope. I have no provision. I have no inheritance. I have no promise for what tomorrow holds. But Boaz, would you spread your garment over me? And would you cover me? And she was asking him, would you redeem me? I have no one to redeem. I have no one to buy me back. I have no one to cover me. A kinsman redeemer didn't just redeem as a one-time act, but they were responsible for the life of the person they were redeeming for as long as the person lived. So what she was asking of Boaz, for the rest of my life, Boaz, would you take care of me? Would you cover me? Would you protect me? Would you give me a hope? Could I have a future? He was agreeing to do so for the rest of her life. And my fourth point is this, God still provides us a kinsman redeemer. Boaz, and you've seen it in the Old Testament and Eugene or Pastor Myron has pointed this out to us. 
Boaz in the Old Testament is a type and a shadow of Jesus that would be coming in the New Testament. God knew that without Him, without someone to redeem us, without someone to buy us back, without someone to cover us, that we would forever be lost without a hope, without a future, without provision, without inheritance, a foreigner that had no hope for the future whatsoever. And just as Ruth lay at the feet of Boaz, can you imagine, can you imagine the vulnerability? Can you imagine her vulnerability? And and church, I want you to get this. Boaz did not seek and come find Ruth. Ruth went and found and sought out Boaz. She didn't sit back and go, I'm just going to pray for a kinsman redeemer. I'm just going to pray that somebody shows up. I'm just going to pray somebody comes ask me. I'm going to pray that somebody comes up to me and go, Ruth, I heard on the streets you need a kinsman redeemer. She didn't wait for that. She put herself in the most vulnerable position possible, a point of rejection to where he could have totally rejected her and said no. And the story goes on. There was another kinsman redeemer in their family and Boaz goes to him and gives him the opportunity first to redeem. But he said he didn't want to because he didn't want to jeopardize the inheritance of his children and gave permission to Boaz as the next one in line to redeem Ruth. But she lay there in that vulnerable situation with nothing, nothing to offer. No history of God, no long testimony of her faithfulness. And she lay there and go, Boaz, would you cover me? Boaz is a representation of God sending his son Jesus to a world that needed to be redeemed. We needed someone to cover our faults. We needed someone to cover our shortcomings. We needed someone to give us a hope and a future because without him, there is no hope and there is no future. We need someone to give us a security that we know that our future is secure. We need someone to cover the shame and the guilt and the shortcoming because no matter how good we are, we can never make up for the sin that's in our life. Only a kinsman redeemer can do it and his name is Jesus. I don't have a testimony of living this horrible, wretched life. When Eugene talked about, you know, your BC life, I don't, I don't know what a BC life is. I gave my heart to Jesus when I was a six-year-old little girl at a Methodist church. And from that moment on, I lived for him for all of my days. I'm not saying I'm perfect and I'm not saying I haven't sinned because I have. But living a life away from Jesus, I I don't know what that feels like. I don't have the testimony of I was terribly lost and in darkness and in evil. And then I was found, though I was. My testimony is a girl 
that was terribly, terribly, terribly broken. And I was in desperate need of a redeemer to make my heart whole. I was so broken and I just needed somebody. Can you fix my heart? Can you heal my heart that's broken into a million pieces? Can you mend a heart that's been so hurt and so broken and so abused and so neglected and so rejected? Is there a redeemer out there that can fix this broken heart? And I can't tell you the times over the course of my lifetime that I've come to the feet of Jesus. And I said, Jesus, would you spread your garment out? And would you cover me? Would you cover this brokenness? Would you cover this shame? Would you cover this bitterness? Would you cover this unforgiveness? Would you cover this broken girl? Because I don't want to live my life broken anymore. I need a redeemer who can spread out over me and cover me. And his healing hand can come and can bring mending, a mending hand to my heart. That my testimony is not is lost to found, of course it is, but it's also from broken to whole. That he can take the most shattered pieces of your life as you're vulnerable and you lay before him. And he can put it all back together in a way that you could never dream of. He can put it back together in a way that gives you a hope and a future. It can give you a security that you never had. It can give you provision that you've never had. It can give you a hope that your eternal life is secure in Him like you've never had. But it's your first move and it was my first move. The kinsman redeemer was not. He was there. He was willing. He was available. But Ruth had to take the first step and say, Boaz, Would you redeem me? And the story goes on in chapter four. In verse 13, because of that encounter, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, praise be to the Lord who has not let, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Because see, when we allow Jesus to become our kinsman redeemer, his garment begins to spread, not just over our broken hearts, but over the broken hearts of the people that mean the most to us. They have to reach out to them on his, on their own. But his redeeming power is available not just to us. His garment covers whosoever will come to him. Verse 15. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And verse 16. 
Then Naomi took the child of Boaz and Ruth and laid him on her lap and she cared for him. And the women there said, Naomi now has a son. And they named the baby Obed. And Obed became the father of a man named Jesse. And Jesse became the father of a man named David, as in King David, the greatest king Israel. And we're about to get into his life in the coming weeks. The story three chapters earlier of a family that had no priest, no prophet, no king, nothing extraordinary about this family at all. But they allowed the life events that happened that were so treacherous and so devastating. A woman named Naomi said, I know the road back home and I'm gonna get there as quickly as I can. And as they go back home, God's already working on their behalf to lead Ruth to a field that just happens to be Boaz, who just happens to be a kinsman redeemer to where Ruth could go and lay at his feet and say, Boaz, would you cover me? What does that mean for us today? The same God that did the work in this family's life is the same God that is in this very room and who's prepared and willing and able to do the very same work in the life of your family as well. No matter where you've been and what famine you've walked through and what Moab you've lived in, no matter how far you've gotten off, today, there's an opportunity to get back on the road that leads back to the place you knew you should have always been. And there's a kinsman redeemer that's waiting for you. And his name is Jesus. And he wants to take responsibility for and cover you and redeem you and save you and provide for you, not just for today and not just for next Sunday. He wants to be your redeemer and your Lord and your savior to give you hope and a future and security and provision for the rest of your life. But it's our responsibility to come before him and go, Jesus, would you redeem me? Would you spread your garment over me and cover every bit of ugliness and shame and sin and habits and misfortune and hurt and pain that I bring to you? Would you take this heart that is so broken into so many pieces, Jesus? Would you cover it and make up for it? And could you make this heart whole again? That Jesus is in this room today. And there are those of you in here, this is what you've been looking for. This is what you've been asking for. This is what you've been praying for. And today, if you'll come to him, that garment reaches as far as you would ever want it to reach. That he will come and he will redeem you today. So church, I want you to bow your head. And I'm going to pray for you today. You may be one of the ones that's walked in here today. Going, I don't have a lot of hope. 
don't have a future. I've blown it. I've messed up. I've made too many mistakes. You may find yourself in Moab and there's all the reasons how you got there. And today, by the Spirit of God, may you now see there's a road that God's created for you to walk back to Him. And at the end of that road, there's our kinsman redeemer, whose name is Jesus, that is willing and prepared and lovingly asking you to give him opportunity to care, to provide, and to cover you for the rest of your days. If that's you here this morning, you say, Miss Heidi, that that's what I need. I need somebody to come and redeem the mess that I'm bringing him. I need somebody to come and fix the brokenness that's in my heart. I need a savior to come and wash over and cover the sins that are in my life. I need a kinsman redeemer. And if that's you this morning, I just want you to lift your hand up. I just want you to lift your hand. Miss Heidi, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? I see your hands. I see your hands. Just lift those hands up. I see them. I see them. He's here. The Holy Spirit is here to spread His garment out, to forgive you, to heal you, to set you free, to provide, to bring security. You can put your hands down now. And I want everybody in this room, before we pray this prayer, I want you to keep your heads bowed. But those of you in the room who have accepted Jesus, just like Eugene said during communion today, I want you to remember, no matter how long you've walked with Him, no matter how long you've given your heart to Him, no matter how long you've been a believer, May we never forget we were once desperately in need of a kinsman redeemer. And as we're praying this prayer, those of you who have received the redemption of Jesus, I just want you in your heart and with your words to thank him for continuing to cover you for the rest of your days. So church, pray this prayer with me as we pray with the ones who have lifted their hand. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you, Lord, that you've provided a kinsman redeemer. Jesus, I come to your feet now with my brokenness, with my sin, with my shame, with my pain, with my wounds, And I ask you today, Jesus, would you cover me? Would you redeem me? Would you give me a hope and a future? Please forgive me for the sins I've committed, for the way I've wandered off and walked away from you. But today, Lord Jesus, I'm making a decision to get back on the road that leads me back to you. Thank you for covering me, for forgiving me, for redeeming me, 
for the rest of my life. I make you today my Lord, my Savior, and my Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, Amen and Amen.